Today's reading is taken from Acts 17, verses 16 to 34. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know that this new teaching, may, sorry, may we know, may, <laughs> sorry, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole, the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he is not far away from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. This is the word of the Lord. Just pray for Gareth. Lord, look down on your servant Gareth and grant him your grace to impart your word as you would have it spoken to us. Open our hearts and ears to hear your word. Let your, in your name, loving Lord, amen. amen. 
Amen. Thank you so much, Caroline. Well, good morning, everybody. It is good to be with you. Um, we are today at the penultimate part of our sermon series on the book of Acts. Acts tells the story of the birth and growth of the church, how the church goes from a small group of Jesus followers in Galilee to a global movement that is still going and growing today. And today's topic, the title of today's talk, is Translating the Gospel. And it strikes me as we start that even this topic, even this title, is testament to the journey of transformation that the church has been going on. Think back a couple of weeks to Acts chapter 10 when Peter met Cornelius. The question he's wrestling with is, is it possible for a Gentile, a non-Jew, to be saved and part of God's family? Turns out the answer is yes. In Acts chapter 15, the early church has a council because they have to wrestle with the question, well, if Gentiles can be part of God's family, on what conditions? What are the prerequisites for being part of this? And again, it turns out, well, actually, Jews and Gentiles are part of God's family by grace. And so this is how far the church has come, that they've gone from asking the question, can Gentiles be saved, and on what conditions can they be part of God's family, to now asking the question, how do we translate the gospel? How do we communicate the good news about Jesus? How do we offer an invitation to be part of God's family in a way that is accessible and makes sense to people outside of our community? They've gone from wondering whether something is even a good idea to thinking, how do we do this well? And so this morning, I want us to draw a few uh, lessons from this chapter, Acts 17, and the way in which Paul translates the gospel to this group of people in, a middle, in the middle of Athens. And we'll see how we go, but there'll probably be three, three stages, three stages of translating the gospel that Paul goes through in this passage. And firstly, in this journey, Paul moves into the marketplace. The beginning of translating the good news involves moving into the marketplace. At the beginning of this story, Paul is meant to be laying low. Not so long ago, uh, he had been preaching in a place called Berea. Uh, he had as Paul often did, uh, encountered some opposition. He's in a bit of trouble. So he's sent to Athens with the idea that he kind of keeps quiet there and waits for his colleagues Timothy and Silas to rock up. But Paul being Paul, uh, in verse 16, is waiting in the city and is so distressed by the idols that he decides, I've got to do some preaching. I've got to do some preaching. And so he starts in verse 17 by going into the synagogue and chatting to the already religious folk. But then halfway through verse 17, we read, he also goes into the marketplace and he's talking day by day to those who happen to be there. Paul moves from the relative safety of the synagogue into the vulnerability of the marketplace. And I think that as we as a church find ourselves in a situation where maybe uh, we are not in the majority anymore, where actually lots of people are not part of a church, where actually the majority of people are not necessarily following Jesus, we're in what some people call a post-Christian culture, 
Well, actually, there's a real call and challenge for the church to move from the safety of the building or of just being together, only ever together in a congregation, and actually move as a church into the marketplace. Now, in Paul's particular case, this means going out and getting yourself in a debate with some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, right, and having uh, an exchange of ideas with them. And it's worth saying that this isn't everybody's calling. This isn't what moving into the marketplace looks like for most people. This isn't what moving into the marketplace looked like for most people in the early church. We don't read any stories of Peter having arguments with the kind of academic folk in the Areopagus. That wasn't part of his story. And for most of us, that actually won't be what this call looks like. But I do just want to say that there are some of you here, and you actually maybe do feel like, well, actually, maybe I am being called to speak into culture. Maybe God has put it on my heart uh, to share how faith can make sense. Maybe God has put a particular prophetic voice where you are called to speak into society in a special way. I suspect in this building and at home, there are going to be people, when you hear that, you go, I've been wondering if maybe that's me. And if that is you, I'd love to pray with you. You can get in touch. We'd love to chat and cheer you on as a church. But I am struck that for most people, moving into the marketplace is going to look a little different to that. In fact, for most people, moving into the marketplace isn't actually going to involve moving at all. More, it's going to be a slight tweak of your mindset. Because the reality is, as we've been talking about a lot at 10.45, is that each of us find ourselves in an everyday front line, in a context, whether that's the community you live in, whether that's the place you work and study, we find ourselves in a place where we actually have the opportunity to live out and speak out our faith. Actually, most of you on Monday to Saturday are not in the safety of the synagogue or the church, you're actually in the marketplace already. But the call for us is when we are actually in that marketplace, not to think that there's a huge separation between that and church, or between that and being a Christian, but actually just to tweak the way we think so that when we go into the marketplaces that God has already put you in, that you know that you go as ambassadors of Jesus. Now, having said that, having said that, I'm still struck that moving from the safety of the synagogue to the marketplace is a vulnerable move. When Paul goes into these debates, he gets called a babbler. They say that he has some strange ideas. And I do feel that actually one of the calls to God's church at this time is to be brave and to be vulnerable. I live in the city centre, and so uh, it is fairly regularly for me to walk into town and to come across people street preaching uh, in various locations. And it's not something I've ever had a go at myself. I'd say it's a very literal interpretation of this call that God puts uh, on the church. And at my worst moments, I get a little bit awkward and embarrassed when I see street preaching. I'm just, I'm, I'm not proud of this, but if I'm wearing my collar, and I'm walking past street preachers, I take it off because I'm like, I don't want to get into any awkward conversations. Um, but actually, uh, not so long ago, I'd recently walked past a street preacher and I heard a couple of people debriefing themselves what they'd just heard. And to be honest, they were even harsher than these philosophers. They were pretty much laying in to what these people were saying. 
And again, initially, I just felt relief that they weren't talking about me. But then I felt God sort of say to me, but Gareth, there is a challenge for you and for all of us in the church to be willing to face the risk of that kind of rejection. Now, it might well be that, as I once heard it described, that street preaching is what you could call high bravery, low strategy. And I think that's true. I think there are more thoughtful ways we can make this happen. But actually, is it not part of the call of the church from the beginning to actually move into a place where you're vulnerable enough that the message you bring might be rejected? And maybe that's a call for all of us to hear this morning. Secondly, having moved into the marketplace, Paul learns the language. Translating the gospel involves learning the language. Now, learning a language is a little bit more than simply knowing what specific various words mean. And in the case of Paul, learning the language and translating the gospel means more than simply speaking in Greek or even using a few phrases that they know. Let me give you a bit of an example. The one other language that I speak is Welsh. And um, I stole this sermon illustration off a meme, but um, one of the things uh, that I was uh, reading recently is the fact that the uh, phrase in Welsh for goodbye is the phrase huilvawr, right? Huilvawr, which literally is translated as big fun, big fun. Now, if in school, when kids growing up where I did, which was first language Welsh, were taught to just literally translate Welsh into English, um, they wouldn't be very well equipped for then speaking to people in another context if they kept ending their conversations. Big fun, big fun. The point is, is that translation involves more than simply literally swapping one word for another. Actually, it involves learning and understanding meaning. It means getting a sense of your surroundings. And one of the things I'm really struck by is the way when Paul is dragged in front of the Areopagus, this kind of council of Greek thinkers, the way he approaches his sermon. There's other parts in Acts where Paul and others are preaching to a group of already religious people in synagogues. And what they do is they tend to, and Acts 13 is an example of this, is they tend to start with the story of the Old Testament and the story of Israel, and they go through in detail all of that story, and the punchline, the end, is how Jesus is the person that the people had been waiting for, right? Because this is who they're speaking to. Amazingly, in Paul's sermon, he doesn't actually make an explicit reference to the Old Testament or to the story of Israel. I, I, I do want to say that Scripture frames and is soaked uh, in all that he's saying. He tells the story of God, but he doesn't go, as you all know, Isaiah the prophet says this, or as you all know from Moses. No, he doesn't do any of that. Actually, he starts with the big picture of creation. He actually specifically in verses um, 28 and 29, or in verses 28 specifically, references some of their own poets and writers. Actually, Paul takes the time to learn the language in order to translate and to speak the gospel to this group of people. And not only is translation more than simply swapping one word for another, it strikes me that translation is something that is always going to take time. Because I don't think that Paul is able 
to speak so directly into their culture that Paul is able to quote from the people that they would have known and heard of because just as he was on his way to the Areopagus, he picked up um, a kind of a, a, a Greek philosophy for dummies book or he scrolled through Instagram to see what the latest inspirational quotes were to borrow for his talk. He did it because actually he had been immersed in that culture and so when the time came, he was ready to speak into it. And again, in case you misunderstand me, what I'm not saying is that there therefore is a call for all of you to become cultural commentators, to really spend your time wrestling with what the world is saying, or for you to become philosophical ninjas. That's not what I'm getting at. In fact, my point is, is that that is why it's so important that you recognize the marketplace that you're already in. Because you've probably been there for a while because you probably get it a lot more than I do, because you, having been immersed in that place that God has already put you in, already speak the language, and you are the best possible placed person to speak and to share and to translate the good news of Jesus into that space. And finally, finally, Paul, having moved into the marketplace, having learnt the language, locates the real longing that existed in that space. Paul doesn't just substitute words, but actually he gets to the heart of what he saw was going on in that culture. And in verses 22 and 23, he really hones in on something that he spotted, which was a statue, and there would have been loads of statues of different gods in Athens, but he hones in on a specific one that he saw, which was an altar to an unknown god. Someone had literally just put up a statue and gone, just in case, a bit of, uh, a bit of spiritual insurance, we'll do an altar to an unknown god. But what Paul sees here, and what Paul does when he realizes what this is, is he figures out what is actually at the heart of why somebody would build that in the first place. And what he recognizes is that this is a culture that is desperately seeking meaning and purpose, but not sure where to find it. And so Paul says to the people, I see that you are very religious, because he sees that they're looking for the right thing, just in the wrong place. He quotes from their own philosophers, because he's like, actually, I see the logic of where you're going, but actually you just haven't carried it through to the conclusion that it needs. What Paul has seen is a, is a longing for meaning and purpose that is illustrated by this altar to an unknown God. And I happen to think that there is something profoundly, profoundly relevant about this altar, even for our current culture. Actually, even though we're 2,000 years later, I think this really speaks into our own situation. One of the things that church leaders often talk about with great concern is, or, uh, and what some people um, get on the other side of the debate get very excited about, is the rise of the nuns, i.e. not the rise of the nuns, the rise of the nuns, right? So those people that, um, I'd be well up for the rise of the nuns, but the rise of the nuns, i.e. those people that say none on a census when asked what religion they belong to, right? And often, uh, this is used as an easy way of saying that nobody's interested in God anymore, that actually we're just this incredibly rational, secular society. But I'm fairly sure that that is not really the case. 
I was reading in preparation for today a book um, by uh, an author called Tara Isabella Burton called Strange Rights, where she looks at um, the kind of trends in religion in the US, but I think it does translate. And she says that actually, we're not in a world where people aren't religious. We're in a world where people are religiously remixed. We're in a world where people are religiously remixed. In other words, people have a spiritual soundtrack, but it's a mixtape. It's bits and bobs of different worldviews and beliefs that are all part of one, of one kind of smushed meal that they're eating. And she uh, looks at not just people that say, I'm spiritual but not religious, but even people who say they don't belong to a religion. And actually, um, there was a survey done a couple of years ago in the US that said that 72% of people who claim to not have any religious affiliation believed in God. Nearly half of those people talked to God sometimes. Remarkably, 18% of them believed in the God of the Bible, believe it or not. And so it seems to me that actually, like those in Athens, we are in a culture where people are really religious, but maybe the soundtrack is something of an interesting mixtape. People are longing for meaning and purpose. In fact, she goes on to say how even the way in which advertising happens is built and designed to try and attract people's spiritual longings. She says, um, when she was writing this book, I once noticed a giant sign at my local bus stop assuring me that you made it to this very spot at this very moment. There is a reason for everything. Then she says, it was a billboard trying to sell me oat milk. And so there's a sense in which we're in this culture that actually is incredibly religious. But, and so the challenge for us is not to convince people that there is meaning or purpose to be found, but rather to give people a glimpse of where that meaning is to be found. And maybe there has been no greater illustration of our religiously remixed culture than in the recent phenomena that came, the religious fervor that was swept England in recent times. You know what I mean? Daniel already alluded to it. The cry of, it's coming home. It's coming home. And it strikes me that that cry, it's coming home, was more than just a football slogan, but actually it tapped into something about uh, people's need for two things. Number one, a bigger sense of community, to feel like they're part of a bigger family. And number two, a bigger story, a bigger story to make sense of their situation. A story not just of winning a football game, but of something intangible coming home. Now, um, even as a Welshman, I take no pleasure in this, but obviously, as Daniel said, it didn't come home. And in some ways, that also captures the limitations of so many of our longings. Because actually, the story didn't have the ending that we wanted it to. And actually, so many of the bigger stories that we put our hope in, even when they do end as we want them to, we find that we're not as satisfied as we hoped we would be had they come true. And so it feels to me that as we move into the marketplace, as we learn the language of our culture, as we actually sense what is going on in our world, we're not preaching to a non-religious world. We're actually preaching to a deeply religious culture. And maybe you're listening and you're like, oh gosh, that's me. I am totally playing the spiritual mixtape right now. But here's what I want to say to you as we land. 
people of Nottingham, people of England, I see that you are very religious with your self-care Sundays, with your well-being, with your mixtapes, with your cries of it's coming home. But God is bigger, and God has a bigger story and a bigger family than you could imagine. He is the God who made you. More than that, he is the God who loves you and knows you. More than that, he is the God who is like a father who, like in Luke 15, stands waiting, asking the question, are you going to come home? Are you going to come home? That's the invitation to our world. That's the invitation that God would put out to you. Are you going to come home? Are you going to come home and be part of my family? Because I've got a bigger story with a better ending and a bigger family, and you can be part of it.